0: Hello, friends. Uh, My name is Steve, and we are here today with author, translator, and teacher uh, Nicholas Kotar. Nicholas, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure. I know you're very busy, so I really appreciate taking time out of your day. You have lots going on.
1: I do, yeah. Too much.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was preparing for this. I always like to look into whoever I'm talking to, like to look into their bio and kind of, you know, see what makes them tick and their backgrounds and Mm-hmm. You've done a lot. <laughs> yes. A lot of, a lot
1: and stuff. I don't seem to stop. Something's wrong with me. <laughs>
0: no, that's a good thing. Um, it's, it's uh, once you kind of get get going and you have that kind of, um, you're always striving to do something different, it, it's, it's hard to stop.
1: It's true. And, you know, you, the interests keep broadening and there's mo- so much stuff to learn, you know? <laughs> it's a, there is. It's a wide a, world out there.
0: <laughs> for sure. So, for people who aren't familiar with you, uh, can you tell us about you and your work?
1: yeah i do a lot um but for for this podcast probably the the easiest touch point is that i write um fantasy inspired by russian fairy tales um and uh i also tell russian fairy tales retell russian fairy tales on a podcast uh that's well there's actually a new podcast coming at the end of the month uh mm-hmm. it's um retellings of original not original i should say classic russian fairy tales and other slavic fairy tales with composed music and um mm-hmm. I uh, talk about stories and their significance and how we can sort of learn to live it a little bit better through our reading. Uh, but that's mostly on my Patreon community, so I do a little mm-hmm. bit of everything.
0: <laughs> so, what is it about uh, Slavic or Russian fairy tales that keeps coming keeps you coming back to them? What is it about them that draws you to them?
1: Well, for me, it's it's a it's a matter of heritage. Um, I come f- I come from Russian uh, stock, so even though I'm third generation American. Uh, I actually didn't speak English until I was five, uh, even though I was born in San Francisco, and uh, my mom was born in San Francisco, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's it's an odd thing for for a lot of people to hear about, but the the situation was um, was sort of like this. Uh, we lived in a ghetto, um, not in the sense of it being poor, but in the sense of it being uh, walled off from from other influences. A little part of San Francisco that was almost entirely either Russian or Chinese. And the two got, got along very well. And there's some history there because uh, there was a, a point in Russian history where a bunch of Russians went escaped Russia during the revolution through China. Mm-hmm. And my family was part of those people. And <clears throat> my grandma spoke fluent, fluent Chinese and, and
0: mm-hmm. meant...
1: It meant uh, you get the best seats at the Ch- at the best restaurants in San Francisco, and San Francisco's <laughs> got some really nice Chinese restaurants. Let me tell you, <laughs> there was one ex- one experience I remember. Uh, we we walked into this place. It was a t- total hole in the ground in the middle of a residential area. You never would have thought it was even a restaurant. And it had some bizarre name like K fifty two or something like. I mean, I have no idea what it meant. And you walk in, and it's it's like a living room filled with circular tables. Every single spot is taken up by a Chinese person uh the walls are covered in chinese characters there's not a single white person in that entire place except for me and my family and everybody <laughs> stops talking and looks at us as we walk in like what are you doing here and you know and uh my grandma, you know set them to the weight and they're like okay all right we got you <laughs> and it was amazing oh. it was really good so right. i grew up with the fairy tales uh, uh in the original language and <clears throat> i guess they went really deep i recently um I was uh rereading my first novel with my uh with my patrons for the first time ever and it even surprised me how deep those stories went like when I was writing that novel I didn't realize that I was uh pulling from Russian fairy tale mm-hmm. tropes and kind of just like I was deep in that story world and I didn't even realize how deep so yeah it's it's deep in there <laughs> oh,
0: wow. those whole those hole in the grounds are the best restaurants though aren't they, oh, are man, they be the they're so good they're yeah. so good <laughs> 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 just uh yeah they're the they're, they're the gems that you can find once in a while the local gems
1: yeah i mean i still remember that place i don't think it's there anymore but man it was it was something
0: <laughs> when you uh when you're influenced by because it's run so deep for you is there ever concern that you're too close to the fairy tale or What how do you try to to change things to make it unpredictable and uh, for someone who's familiar with those fairy tales so they don't know what's going to happen next
1: yeah it's a good question actually um the the i think the first answer is that most people aren't familiar with russian fairy tales very much like most people who know fairy tales will probably know the you know the grim uh favorites you know the hans christian andersen or some european ones maybe now uh there's more you're getting some some more from uh from the african or from the from the eastern um uh, traditions but uh the russian fairy tale is popular with like a, a small group of people who are into weird things <laughs> um or russians themselves uh, and they haven't really gotten the kind of uh center stage popularity except for a few fantasy novels that that were that were sort of popular briefly there was one series that was entirely based on on russian history and russian fairy tales that was popular in the in the mid 2010s i think Uh, that was Catherine arden's uh series um it was really good uh girl in the tower was one of them really really good and then uh cj cherry had a had a a series of based on Russian fairy tales from the eighties that nobody reads, but, um, not because they're not good. They're really good, but she does some really weird experimental things with point of view in those books. And they're hard to get into just because of that. But if you, if you keep going, they're really, uh, really rewarding. Um, so, I mean, I guess there's, there's an advantage that a lot of people aren't going to recognize the tropes because they're, they're different from what most, most, uh, European stories are. But for myself, um i'm the kind of writer that doesn't doesn't stick to tropes very strongly like i like tropes but i like to really twist them <laughs> so <laughs> since the since the tropes are already twisted it's even more fun to kind of see what i can do to uh to undermine people's expectations about that so yeah i i'll say in my marketing copy like this is inspired by this particular fairy tale and i have people going and reading those fairy tales and they they're come back they come back to me they're like I don't get it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I try to I try to keep it very tangential and kind of just just a hint.
0: <laughs> what are some of your favorite tropes to to twist and to to play with?
1: Uh, in in the Russian fairy tale tradition, uh, as as in many actually, the the third son trope is a really popular one, or the third daughter. Mm-hmm. So there's always it's the the first two sons or daughters are always terrible and the third one is somehow specially chosen but also there's this there's always a a sense of the third daughter or the third son being somehow uh less entitled than the rest like has has the least amount of love from the parents least amount of expectations in the world and uh so there's always that that's always fun because there's something about uh a youngest child being unloved by older siblings or even parents that actually really appeals to readers. They, they like to, mm. because they, they, they know that there's going to be a big flip at the end where the third child becomes either the prince or the, or the, uh, the princess or whatever. Right. So that's always fun to play with. But in, in, um in Russian fairy tales, the best trope to really play around with is, is the, uh, uh, the, the unreliable hero thing, because you never know if the hero is going to be a prince or an idiot and you never know if the idiot's going to be smart or stupid. So there's an entire series of, of um, fairy tales called the uh, the Ivan the Idiot tales. And Ivan is like Jack, right? It's like it's like a it's like a stock name. Um, so Ivan the Idiot is always the third son. He's always hated by everybody, and he's a simpleton. He likes to he doesn't do anything with his life. He w- lays about all day, says stupid things, but he has weird, bizarre connections with the wild world outside the village. And so whenever there's like an incursion of some magic, he has a bizarre way of like a persistence, like a crazy persistence to to meet that thing on its level mm-hmm. and, to, and to overcome it, but using the rules of the thing, not the rules of the village. And uh, so that way he gets access to special power and kind of uh, s- hidden secret knowledge. And then the idiot ends up being the wise one. And it's really cool how oftentimes he gets revealed almost... Um, in spite of himself, like he does everything possible to hide. And at the end, it's like the princess who reveals him or the king who reveals him. He's got like, well, I guess it was me all along. It's, which is, it's really fun. Like I I really enjoy that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. I guess it's me. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So with, uh, with characters, you know, just in fantasy in general, how do you make a care or just in literature, I guess, when you create a character, how do you make a character compelling? What are things that you can, that you do specifically to, to make readers invested in the character
1: yeah it's a good question um yeah there's a lot you can do I mean there's some some technical things that writers learn after after they've been doing it for a while you want you know you want to make sure that, that the character is is relatable but what does that mean like because a reader will always say yeah I didn't relate or I will relate but if you ask the reader what was it about that character that was relatable they they're not always able to say um, as a writer I can tell you there's that pro- that's there's a, a lot that goes into building out uh, a series of goals and motivations for the character that are, that are deep and that inform the character as he or she goes through the, through the journey. Um, but what I think really uh, makes characters uh, compelling and, uh, and um, unexpected and enjoyable for readers is for me, is um, when I create them, is when they're actually uh, based on real people. Um, and I'm not, I don't think that's the case for all writers. Not all writers can use real people as models because it can get in the way like if you're too if you skew too close to what the person really is you might like it might actually stop you from writing authentically but for me like i like to start from a real human being and i imagine what that person would do in given in a given situation and what what ends up happening very often for me is that if i'm if I'm writing the character in a, in a real way, like if the character is, has an internal life within that story world, if I'm firmly within that, that character's point of view, if I'm really invested in that character, if I love that character, then what ends up happening is that they go away from the original human model and they become something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's almost like they choose themselves like what they become. And at that point, if I've, if I've reached that and I'm really happy if I have, uh, it's my job to kind of get out of the way and let the character choose his or her own way and i know that those are effective because the when readers get back to me and tell me i really love that character then i'm like haha you don't know but that's what i did (laughs) and so it works it really works it doesn't it's like and it's it's hard it's not like a magic formula or something where you where you do it every time and it works every time Mm -hmm. you know some some characters work better than others and and there's a bit of i don't know chance or or like good good luck that that comes into uh Choosing the right model, but then also allowing that character to kind of navigate the story world authentically. Mm. Um, and then there's the other like thing that writers aren't supposed to say, and that's that the the more limitations you give a character, even if it's like physical limitations, like characters who are sick or or who have like um, dis- disabilities, um, readers really gravitate towards those characters. And of course, the trick there is not to make it traumatic, because if you focus on the trauma uh, of the character too much, then it becomes almost like trauma porn. You know what I mean? Like, if if the disability or the you know the thing that limits them within the story becomes like the full focus of everything instead of just an interesting aspect of their character that will have to limit the way they move through the world and the kind of decisions they make. So you have to be careful because, especially now, especially nowadays, people get very sensitive about that sort of thing. Like you have to you have to navigate it very carefully. But consistently, my the, the character that, that my readers love the most is from my third novel, and uh, she's paralyzed, like from from the waist down. And for me, that was the the reason that I chose to do that and chose to navigate that is because she was um, she was a member of a society of of nomadic horsemen. Hmm. So, in a society like that, if you can't ride a horse, you're the, you're the biggest kind of um, limitation on your family. So just the fact that they even allow and this is gonna sound horrible, but it's true of, of medieval societies, even the fact that they allowed her to live is kind of unusual right so so she's gonna be looked at by people outside of her family with a lot of um not some, maybe not hatred but distrust and kind of envy and like you're you know you're limiting us like we could be something better than we are because you have this thing and, and you're you're dragging down your family. And so when her brother ends up being a big uh, source of conflict. Um, in her life it makes sense right because then it's like this simultaneously warning like i love my sister but man is she messing with with the success of this family and when you're living hand-to-mouth like a lot of nomadic peoples do you know sometimes it could be the question of life and death and so using her as a as a point of view as a viewpoint character allowing allowing her journey uh being less about because it's fantasy like she's able to find healing the healing is less about her finding her legs, so to speak. And it's more about finding an internal wholeness, like becoming a Mm -hmm. full person that isn't defined by that limitation, but is also able to do things in a way that she never would have been had she not had that limitation. So she's a really strong character because she has to be, otherwise she would be dead. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So this, I'm sorry, that was, that was a long rambling answer, but (laughs) yeah, characters, characters are great.
0: (laughs) No, I I love rambling answers. Um, uh, is it because do readers gravitate and i'm one of them but do readers gravitate towards characters with some kind of limitation is it is it because we want to see someone overcome and is it yeah uh, do we see that do we want to see that in our own lives and want to kind of believe in ourselves and think well will have this whatever it may be and i can overcome it too is that or do we just cheer on Do we just find it's,
1: it's so that's a really you know like steve that's a really great question and i i have to uh i want to make i want to like focus on on the way you asked it because there's there really is a difference between like empathetically connecting with the mm. character and thinking i can do the same thing and just sitting on the couch and saying go 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 right? right and um i think it's both i think it's both and that's what makes characters like that so powerful because the the initial reaction to such characters is always oh i hope they i hope they overcome mm. because we all we're communal creatures, you know, we're, we're raised in families. Even, even if we individually are not as a species, we, we grew, we became who we are because of community, because of roots, because of, you know, the heart, the hearth where the stories were told, you know, all that stuff. That, that's how, that's how we become civilized in in a lot of ways. Right. Um, So to see, to want the benefit of, of a member of our species, so to speak, like to see, to want like, A fellow human being to succeed, that's something that's just baked into us. And I don't, I think you have to, you know, even if you're a terrible person, you probably will will want that to happen. But the, the, how you ask about like, is there something inside us that we hope will be able to do the same thing? I, you know, it's not a popular thing nowadays to say that stories, the stories can have actual, like real physical effect on people's lives. It's, if you really dig into like the, sort of the the deeper part of what reading does to you as a human being a lot of people don't want to go there because Mm -hmm. if we're honest some people's uh, tastes uh you know tend towards the dark right Mm -hmm. so if you're going to read horror if you're going to read about slashers you're going to read you know um some more like deviant or whatever type type of romance novels um you want to you want to think that I'm just doing this because it's entertainment and it's harmless and it has no effect on me. I actually don't think that's true. I I think that that the experience of of human wisdom throughout the centuries teaches us that storytelling is really strong in motivating action. Hmm. And I don't think that when we when we read powerfully written stories that they're just that they just affect us on a sur- on a surface level. That they just affect our entertainment centers of our brain. I actually think that they have a very strong affinity with our sort of with the centers of action inside us like the heart as opposed to the mind kind of if you want to put it that way mm-hmm. um and i i believe that very strongly so when i write these characters i write them not only so that people can sit on the couch and and um, cheer them on but to show people that yes it can be done and not just to show but also mm-hmm. to allow them the experience of being in that uh character's skin in that character's mind and seeing how it's done uh, and then maybe, maybe um, if a person is having a very difficult moment in their lives, they might want to try doing what, what she or he did. The characters did and try to overcome some things in their own lives. I mean, I know this is true because mm. even something as um, banal as watching uh, a um, well, for me it was. Dur- it, this was during the uh, the pandemic. I was watching something called the 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 world's toughest race on Amazon. Uh, It's a reality show, but it's based on an actual uh, sport, which is called adventure racing. And basically, this is like, it's like fantasy questing as a sport. So you're you're given a map, uh, and there's a bunch of checkpoints that you have to reach on the map. And you're told what ways you can, like what, um, how you have to get to your checkpoint. So either you're on foot, or you're on a boat, or you're on a bike. Uh, Or sometimes you're climbing up rocks. Uh, This is a real sport uh, with, you know, the people actually, and I've started uh, competing in it. Actually, it's Mm real fun. Um, And, you are not told how to get to these checkpoints. You're given a map and you have a compass and you have to figure out your own, the own way, your own way of doing it. Now, Mm -hmm. these races, they go from like four hour or even two hour short sprints to multi-day expeditions where you have to carry your own food. You have to carry your, your, your changes of clothes. uh, You have to carry your, basically everything. Uh, And, this the this reality show was filming one of these seven day long expeditions that was um it was a race that was part of the world series of this uh, of the sport, right And here I am in the middle of the pandemic, everything shut down. nobody's moving around. I'm looking at these people like climbing mountains and they're just regular people because some of them are are um, athletes and some of these are people who just have interesting family stories uh, that that the producers picked to see if they'd be able to finish the race right so you have like the balance between the professionals and the amateurs that are just like pushing themselves to the limit and i was like i can do this i'm watching this i can do this and it wasn't just me sitting on the couch it was like the next day i found one of the contestants I found him online i got his phone number and i called him I'm like i want you to be my coach and luckily he was he was doing coaching at that time specifically for adventure racing hmm. and since then i uh, i've done four races and i finished the podium uh, finish at, uh, for one of them so just to show you the storytelling of that uh, of that um uh the tv show which was very much a story i mean they filmed it to be like a fantasy novel it was great um huh got me not just up off my butt, but it got me to go and like do stupid things like run around for four and a half hours in the middle of uh, upstate New York winter uh, with, you know, like through the wilds for no other reason than to train. I mean, it's, it's, so it does work. Stories can really move you. I think.
0: Hmm. Yeah. uh, There was a a, a quote on your site, on your website. uh, We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Mm. Yeah. It's, I think storytelling is really tra- storytelling. I think transcends cultures and languages, and it's something that's since the beginning of time. I think we've been pointing at the sky and yeah. telling each other stories.
1: It's true, we have, and and it's if you think about it, it's really strange. Like why why would we? It's not for a for a modern person, for a person living now. We're so trained to think about everything in an, an- analytical way, to look at everything and try to break it down and try to put it into formulas that you can understand and kind of make sense of in a rational way um from that mindset it makes no sense that you would try to make sense of the world through figurative language and metaphors and heroes journeys but that is the way humanity has always done it as far as far as we can tell there hasn't been really a civilization ever that has survived purely by rationalistic thinking except for now
0: (laughs) (laughs) and do you think we do you think we crave those things more and more now with Technology oh, yeah. and social media and everything else, and it's—I um, think—I think I, think I notice a lot more people, even like Gen Zers, are are, yeah. are, are almost craving that uh, you know, like longer form content, or you know, well, what they're craving is meaning. Digital, yeah. no
1: they're they're cre- they're craving meaning, and meaning is is connection that's expressed often through figurative language, because as as it turns out, the way that these stories work is they create the same kind of uh, connections inside the person's brain and body even that you have when you when you have another person next to you so they've done really interesting studies of you know scanning people in reading state and post reading state Mm -hmm. one of the really interesting ones shows effectively that it doesn't matter how how good the story is like if it's narratively driven if if it's a if it's a story that has a plot like a rising action the kind of thing that fairy tales and myths have had ever since the beginning uh that the connections that that are made inside the brain during the reading persist inside the brain days afterwards Hmm. so and not only that but like the 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 centers of the brain that are activated are actually motor sensors so let's say that you're reading about somebody running as far as the brain is concerned not the body but just the brain like if you were if you were to take it as a separate thing you are experiencing that person running as if that person is you Hmm. so it's it's a very strong connection because for whatever reason uh the the narrative structure causes the brain to almost almost fools it into thinking that it's happening to you. And obviously, there's no connection with the body, so you, you can't lose weight by by <laughs> reading about uh, people who run marathons,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. But, but uh, you can get some of that euphoria that they feel when they finish a marathon by reading about it. Sure, that's why people read about people overcoming things because – they get some sense of that euphoria that the, the person who's described, or that you were inside the the skin of, feels, and it's real. Like it's it's not just imagined. Mm,
0: that's interesting. You know, i've I've, I've earned i rep- I've, I've only as I've, I've earned a reputation of reading some of the darker stuff. Um, yeah, you know, like more of the darker fantasy, and people keep asking me why? Why do you read these, such terrible stories? Or and yeah, how, how do you? But and I thought a lot about it. And the thing I keep coming back to is that I, I like that. Even when things are their darkest, that that even faced these insurmountable odds, that someone finds a way to mm-hmm. overcome. They find a way to do as even if they don't necessarily are successful, they try their best and they find a way to overcome whatever it is.
1: I mean that that's one of the great fantasies that that the, the humanity, that appeals to humans throughout history. Because I mean, let's be honest: the the reality of us living in in twenty first century, in the twenty first century West, is so different from the vast majority of what human beings experienced and in some sense maybe there's like a maybe there's like a shared memory that we get genetically of Mm. of the sufferings of of the past or maybe it's maybe we just know that there are people who are suffering out there right now in, in remote places that that aren't as developed as ours so the i think there's something really profound in this desire to experience that pain of others because in some way you're first off you're you're ma- you're basically saying it exists like just acknowledging it saying it out loud is already important right because you're not hiding it you're not pretending like like what's going on over there in those places is like unworthy of my attention right so by by reading these stories you're like yes this this is real this happens but by also by kind of like allowing those stories to have a a positive resolution that it might not have in real life you're doing something even as a reader, by reading those kinds of stories, you're like affirming something about what it means to be human that makes no sense evolutionarily, right? Because if you're only looking at, at the way that the world works, it's all about dog eat dog, and yet humanity has always managed to rise above, uh, in you know, in the worst of times. And so the stories that reflect that, I mean, those are the, those are the most profound. I'm not surprised that you're drawn to that sort of thing.
0: Oh, I, I feel validated now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good.
0: Yeah, no, I can tell them. I, could, I have. Uh, you know, someone. I found someone who agrees with me. So here we go. There you go. Um, <laughs> you no, know, that's really fascinating to uh, to hear about. I, I didn't realize that we that we the brain activity that or the the satisfaction we get from reading about other people doing things that we it goes on for days after we're done.
1: You can, yeah, yeah. There was a really cool experiment done. Basically, they. Um, they took a bunch of college students and they gave them, uh, they gave them like it's a pretty trashy novel, but it's like a thriller, uh, to read at home. And then they would, they would scan their brains, uh, because they had like a control group. They knew what, what a brain scan looked like when you were reading, uh, like the activity of the brain during the reading process. And so they would have them come back one day, two days, five days, or seven days. And I think it persisted, like that same activity kept going for like four days after, after they were reading. Wow. Yeah. Which of course should, should make you think like, Maybe we should be careful about the kinds of things you read because it's going to stick with you a lot longer than you know. But you know, yeah. yeah
0: what do you to do? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I uh, it's, I speak with Jenny Wirtz a lot, and she she keeps telling me mm-hmm. to read C J Cherry. So I need to yeah get on that.
1: She's yeah, yeah C J Cherry is really good. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's amazing. Well,
0: so Jenny Words. <laughs> yeah, Jenny is. I mean, she's you can't help but feel motivated talking to her just or just yeah. being around her just because of just how incredible she is. You're yeah, a totally really wonderful are. person. Um, so, tell me about the uh, Raven Sun series. What is it? Uh, what is it about? What's the pitch for it? Uh,
1: yeah. What's the pitch for it? It's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> uh, it's uh, yeah, So, it's inspired by Russian fairy tales. That's mm-hmm. that's the first pitch. But the um the the setup is uh, something like this. So, basically, there's a there's an ancient kingdom that's uh, very isolated from the rest that has some sort of uh, profound connection with um. With divine power that they've lost, the connection has been lost, and uh, they've been very comfortably living uh, in in their sort of ignorance for a long time. And suddenly, weird things start happening: monsters start appearing from the mm-hmm. from the forests, uh, shapeshifters, uh, omens. The, the sun gets darkened in the middle of the day. Uh, there's a weird pilgrim who may be a pilgrim, maybe a wizard, maybe not starting to give all kinds of unpleasant, uh, uh, prophecies. And then people start disappearing. And suddenly in the middle of nowhere, a giant army appears, uh, that may be human and maybe not, and begins to destroy every army that's set up against it. And so our main character, uh, has to figure out where the army came from and is this an army that you can defeat using normal means? And, Mm -hmm. uh, he goes out and the the big secret the big issue that he has to um wrestle with is uh does he have to allow his country to fall in order to defeat the evil because it it may be too late for his for his country they may have to all be destroyed for him to be able to find the solution to the problem so hmm. that's the that's the brief pitch but it's wow. yeah it's it's a lot of slavic stuff it's a lot of uh, russian fairy tale stuff it's it's uh i've heard people say that it's it's quite different <laughs> from what you normally see in the in the fantasy section of the bookstore <laughs> i
0: would i would imagine you you have to be a little different right to stand out i mean because it's such yeah. a, a crowded marketplace there's so many books to read that you to, I think you've something to to be a little different i think would be good i think it's good
1: i agree um though unfortunately uh the market doesn't always act that way and uh Readers don't always act that way, uh, more often than not. Now, I'm not complaining. I, I'm doing fine as, as, a, as a writer. Uh, but it's it's certainly the case that readers, uh, especially those who prefer uh, to buy the books in places like Amazon, tend to gravitate towards the books that uh, repeat, um, repeat tropes and kind of more the familiarity of things. And I understand, like nowadays, especially with, with the economy being where it is, mm. People are less likely to try out something new if they know of an author that has has a backlist of like 20, 30 books that they haven't even gotten to yet. And they know that flavor already. So might as well just stick with what we know. Um, but that's you know, that's not that's not how I roll. <laughs> Neither. <laughs> Neither. How,
0: you know, how much do you wrestle with that when you're when you're writing or when you're when you're putting your stories together, your characters, on um, making it more more appealing, but at the same time, making it something original what you want to write how how do you manage yeah. how do you how do you balance that
1: well i i'll be honest i have tried to write stories that skew more towards expected tropes and sort of marketable trends and things like this um what i found through experience is that as soon as i start doing that i i stop writing like i don't like to write those kinds of stories so uh, some people can are very good at uh finding and recognizing a trend and writing into it um I found out recently that actually there's there's like different categories of writers depending uh, depending on their sort of personalities. Mm-hmm. Like you know you have all these personality quizzes and things that they, they exist for authors too. It's really interesting, huh. and it turns out that it's perfectly okay. Like some people just can't write uh, to trends. Like you, they try, but. What ends up happening is even if they force themselves, nobody reads it because they recognize that the trends are there, but they can sense that the author, the author's heart is not there in the, in it at all. Mm. So they're they're more likely to put the book away. They're like, there's something missing. It's not as. So, what what ends up happening for me is that uh, I might start with a trend or I might start with a trope or a fairy tale that's recognizable, but uh, I'm always looking for that. Yeah, but thing at the end where it all kind of collapses so like in 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 the first book of the raven sun series the song of the Siren, it's set up like a traditional hero's journey the hero has to leave the city he gets he gets expelled from the city he has no choice he gets banished right and so you think okay this is going to be a traditional quest narrative like in two chapters the quest ends it's done and then there's the rest of the story so it's like it's not about questing at all even though it is <laughs> so it's uh and i'm like yeah, that's just, that's how, that's how it has to be for whatever reason. That's how it's written. That's how it comes out of me. (laughs) So
0: yeah. Yeah, When, when I, whenever I get into a book and I I feel like it's, I can predict what's going to happen. Mm. I get so bored. (laughs) I
1: I mean, the, the one good thing about writing like this is that even as a writer, you get surprised. So what I'll tell you a little story about what happened to me. Like I got to book three of the series and I'm writing, I'm getting to the end. And I think I have, uh, I think I have the climax of, of book three, which is very much like the high point of the, the five book series. Like this is where you think you've gotten to the end and suddenly everything falls apart, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like it does in all novels, but it also like in a large scale, it does for the whole series in book three. It's one, it's one of my favorite books too, yeah. the, just as, as a reader. Um, and I'm, I'm getting to the end and suddenly I, I realized something about uh, the there's a plot twist coming that I hadn't seen when I was writing books one and two. And it's a plot twist that undermines everything that has happened in books one and two everything like nothing is what you think it is when you get to book three suddenly it's like the rug gets pulled out from under you and you know that happened to tolkien when he was writing the hobbit right or rather when he's writing lord of the rings because the hobbit was supposed to be its own thing and the lord of the rings was supposed to be the sequel to the hobbit but it became this saga right that has very little in common with uh with the the character and the nature of, of the hobbit they're two very different books so he had to go back, especially to the chapter with uh, with Gollum in The Hobbit, and he had to retcon a bunch of stuff, right? He had to rewrite it. So it's very difficult to find the original version of The Hobbit these days because it's been taken off the shelves. But if you can find an early edition, you'll see that there's nothing about My Precious and about Gollum, uh, you know, being obsessed about finding Bilbo. He kind of gives him the ring, and that's that. Like, he wins the riddle game, and it's over. And so, of course... Like after he wrote the Saga of the Rings, like, no, that can't work. (laughs) Like you can't have Gollum just handing over. So he had to go back and change it. So when I'm writing this book three and I realized, oh my God, I've just just messed up my entire series. And books one and two are published already, right? So I'm like, I'm screwed. So I I went back and reread books one and two carefully to make sure, like to see, would there have to be like a, a Hobbit level retcon? And you know what? I didn't have to change a damn thing. It was all baked in. Like my... My storytelling intuition just—it knew, like even before I knew in my rational mind, it knew that that twist was going to happen in book three. And so, like, I ended up adding one or two sentences here and there, just, just for thematic continuity. But it—it it was like on the level of a of a proofreading edit, uh, the mm-hmm. kind of thing that you would do anyway, um, very often in a second edition, right? Because you have uh, typos coming up all the time, right? So yeah. you, would, you know, in your next edition, you'd always fix it. So it's like on that level. And it was really surprising to me that in spite of the fact that this whole thing kind of was the rug being pulled out from under you, I had layered it in somehow. It was, it was really weird. <laughs> but, you know, writers talk about that. Like, it yeah. happens. It's it's really interesting.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I did read that you, you, uh, it's, you know, you like fa- your fantasy, traditional fantasy, but a touch of darkness. How yeah. much darkness is too much for you? Or what are there certain lines that you, you just don't cross?
1: Yeah, I, I haven't gone to a line yet where where I've had to say don't don't go ahead. And I'll just give you a little teaser. Um, for example, like I, I'll I read a lot about history, and in history fight you hear about a lot of stuff that's pretty pretty horrible. Um, for example, there was there's this episode that nobody knows about, but in in World War II, the when the Nazis were fighting uh, the Russians on the Eastern Front. Um, there was a lot of weird mysticism associated with like a lot of occult stuff associated with with Nazism, mm-hmm. and so they, over there in particular, in Russia, they for some reason thought that the blood of children um, had healing properties.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what they so they what they would do is they would capture children from villages in Russia, and they would hook them up to um, IV lines, and they would uh, take their blood out and trans, trans, do transfusions into themselves with hmm. with the children's blood and they would bleed the kids dry until the kids died hmm. uh, and uh, there was a russian pilot who um who saw what happened and he he crashed into the place um on purpose ended up losing his legs because of it um because he wanted to destroy the destroy the uh, the fortification that was protecting not protecting protecting these kids and you like hobbled in and and saved a bunch of them Hmm. and uh ended up ended up rescuing a lot of them died anyway just because of because of the trauma of it but that episode made it into my into my third book Hmm. uh, in a fantasy way but what i did is i took that and i fixed it like i gave the kids a way out so for me like I'll t- I'll t- I'll put it like this. So what's too much darkness? Like when I read Game, um, A Game of Thrones, mm. the first book in A Song of Ice and Fire, there's a lot of brutality there, but I th- I always felt like book one had a lot of uh, empathy for the suffering. Like the fact that he gave Tyrion a uh, a viewpoint is not a small thing. Right. There was there was a sense that like the downtrodden and the suffering they're going to have a voice and this story is going to be about them, at least partially. And I thought that was really great because it was done with a lot of uh, sensitivity and with a lot of love, like as only an author can do. Mm-hmm. And then in book two, there was that scene where the kids get like butchered like a pig. Uh, and I'm like, you've lost me, man. Like, I know that stuff happens historically, but I, I would much prefer to see, um, I would much prefer to see the violence have, not necessarily have, have a meaning to it, but allow the reader an emotional way out of it. Mm-hmm. And in, it, when the, the kind of like it started to just get violent for the sake of the violence. And this happened in the, in the TV shows. I mean, like when you're watching Sansa, um, sick the dogs on her husband, right? Like you have a sick joy and pleasure at that scene. And like to me, I'm like, I'm not I'm not okay with feeling those emotions. Like I don't want to feel those emotions. Like that's not good. Um, uh, there's ways out of it that I'd prefer. So for me, it's like I'll explore the darkness. i'll I'll show some pretty terrible things happening. Um, but ultimately, it's like you. like I want the story to come out of it and to give an opportunity for the reader to feel a kind of resolution because they they might not be able to get that in in their own real lives. So yeah. I think it's important that we provide that for them, a kind of consolation at the end.
0: Well, that's a great good answer well it's uh it's tough to transition from. <laughs> but uh you, know, you, you mentioned you uh you spoke russian when you were young and you learned yeah. english uh when you when you started writing did you write in russian or in english or did you do both
1: uh i've only ever written in english the, hmm. the reality is that even if you even if i spoke russian first um you know i went to i was homeschooled initially and then eventually went to a small small local uh, school but it was all in english and obviously you're surrounded by it all the time i am fully bilingual but like the language with uh, that i encounter the written word in like my own written word is has always been english um i will say though that i've I've had some interesting conversations with people who study bilingual culture like as a thing which is a thing i didn't know (laughs) but and uh this person had read my books and she's like you know it's clear that you're writing from a, from an Anglo uh, language setting, hmm. but because you're writing into a, she's telling me because you're writing into a Russian space, it sounds a lot different than it would be if it was just an American who didn't speak Russian. So, like, if somebody who was writing about those stories, like the, even the same story, if, if I gave the outline of the story to somebody else, it would sound a lot different. Not just because we're different people, but because the languages are different. Hmm. And so, just having the, the the structure of the Russian language inside my mind is enough to change the way i write even in english um and i didn't know that but this person who's, who studies this professionally she's like yeah it's there and i was like that's pretty cool <laughs> Wow. so yeah
0: yeah it's there yeah Wow. um and you mentioned your uh, the school your your parents opened the school right that was the school that your yeah. parents opened when you're that's right yeah 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 That must be, um, what, what did you learn from, from that whole experience? It must've been during your formative years and must've had an impact on you later in life.
1: It was huge. It was huge. I mean, just the, there's really something to say about communities, the kinds of communities that can really, uh, raise a person from childhood to adulthood properly, you know, with like the fullest possibility of that person becoming who they're meant to be Mm -hmm. is best done in smaller communities. Um, that's why cities are such a such a late addition to to human society. Like even even the cities that existed way back when, most of them were not nowhere near the size that they are now, and they were still sort of outgrowths of small communities that kind of just multiplied or just gathered together. But still, the heart of it all was always the hearth. It was always the family unit. It was the extended the extended family. So the school that my parents started it was small. We started with fifteen people. By the time I graduated, we had fifty, and that was about as much space that the school could could contain so you're you're going to school with people of all ages uh they we all know each other really well we grow up together and it was a classical school so that, that attracts a certain kind of teacher as well uh, teachers that are really i mean people who are teachers were into the classical movement they they're in there because they love to teach and they love kids so what they're really they're not because they want to make a buck not because they and because they really want to see what they can how they can transform kids how can how they can raise kids up and make them um, intelligent um you know good citizens uh and properly interact how learn how to properly interact with each other you know be be good human beings and it was i was very lucky because that my teachers were just incredible people and they cultivated a love of story just just a love of learning in me um so i ended up going back and teaching there myself and it, in that community of of teachers and uh, and elder students, that was where I really started to practice how to tell stories. That was the context in which I wrote my first stories. That was the context context in which I performed my first stories on stage. Uh, it was the context in which um, I tried out my hand in, in writing and got my first award. Uh, it was was because of the, because of the school. So, yeah, it's definitely something that um, without which none of this would have happened. So, I'm very grateful. <laughs>
0: when with you becoming a teacher yourself what have you learned about yourself during that process what did you learn as you were teaching what i
1: learned is there's no joy as full as seeing the light in another person's eyes that you feel in your heart so hmm. like the the whole point of teaching is to light a light a fire in some, inside somebody on a topic or or an idea that you that you yourself feel animated about so with me, it was always literature and history. So to to be able to stand up there and then teach them and see their eyes light up with the same kind of love that you have for the, for the topic, and then to see them grow into the kinds of people that are like the characters that you read about, or like the historical heroes that you that you want to emulate, it's it's truly amazing. Like you can you can literally guide a person and change the trajectory of their entire life by the words that you say in front of them. It's a huge responsibility, but it's like, I've, I've never been cowed or afraid by it. I've always felt a lot of inspiration mm-hmm. because this, the shared, um, the moment of sharing that happens when, when they, when they come to see the world in all of its hugeness, the way that you're able to give to them, it's, it's truly amazing. There's nothing like it.
0: You had mentioned, uh, having small communities and and the family units and, you know the bigger cities you know i wonder what it's like for our brains now because we're we used to be yeah. connected to small tribes you know we have our, our units and now we're connect, yeah. connected to the whole world with yeah. social media so yep how, how do our brains i don't know how like our brains have have really had a chance to adapt to that adapt it's, it's a lot
1: no well, no, they haven't, and there's there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that not only they aren't, but they probably can't. Um, but the the really scary thing, I think, and there's there's some interesting research about this as well. I like to read about this stuff. Particularly, I'd recommend that people read The Shallows by uh, Nicholas Carr, which oh, is a really, really yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a really good book. Yeah. But yeah, like people aren't supposed to, and I don't think this is a matter of like simple evolution or adaptation. I don't think that we're meant to interact with such a huge amount of information or such a huge amount of people. And it's making uh, this generation of people, uh, the Gen Zers and after them, they're incredible people. Like this generation is awesome because they they want that, because they've just started to feel the lack of that human empathy that comes from being raised in a community and they want it more, like, more than anything else. What I'm really scared about is I'm not sure that the generation after them, Will be able to catch on because mm-hmm. they might not have any reference point. Because at least, uh, at least Gen Z has some like they're they're transitional. But they can still see how it was before. And so unless unless we really dig deep, I think, and start to rebuild those kinds of uh, units, even just on the level of family. I mean, the, the fact that so so few people have a, have good families, the fact that so many people are raised in single parent households, that's a really scary thing because mm-hmm. that means that the next generation is going to be unable. Just simply unable to make those kinds of connections that are necessary for a happy and flourishing life, and that's a terrible thing. Like I, I wouldn't want that on anybody. And what what it might mean in terms of you know sort of macro things like, you know what what is a country filled with people who are unable to relate to each other? I mean that's scary.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty scary. It's it's um it's it's really amazing. When you, like I've had the shallows on my shelf. I need, I need to, it's next an but and also there's another um, there's another book the the dopamine effect that's on, also on my list. That's a really good one too. Yeah, See, it's really fascinating stuff. Just yeah, yeah. I um, also wanted to ask you about uh, you know, on your website. It mentions a, a TV script that's being looked at by Netflix. Yeah. I wanted to ask, and you don't have to name any names or give any information. Don't want to get in <laughs> trouble. But what is yeah. that? What yeah. has that been like? Is that there must be a surreal uh, experience?
1: Well, it's less surreal than you might think. I've, yeah. I've actually had two properties uh, have options on them. Um, The one that was being looked at Netflix was they ultimately turned it down. Mm. And right now it's kind of floating um, in, in, in a, nebulous state uh, it was a it was a pilot that i wrote that's not connected with my books it was oh, just an ex- uh, it was an experiment uh in screenwriting that i did with uh, with a fellow writer uh he he provided me with some direction but i wrote most of it and we actually ended up winning a few awards for screenwriting down in uh, in hollywood um so that's where the award-winning label comes from i have a little piece nice. of paper it's really fun <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah but uh the the more interesting one was actually got an option for for this series uh from a small publishing company sorry a small um production company that was interested in they were like bootstrapped very small uh who had they had connections in various um larger uh production companies but they were trying to put their foot in, in the door and kind of start something fresh and that kind of energy of doing business with people that are not wallowing in money and aren't worried about the bottom line but just like the idea and are interested in using it as one of the several other things that they have to build their own uh, you know portfolio their own brand that's that was really exciting to me Um, it was really and it got it got fairly far like we got Mm. we were we got some pretty prominent people to look at it there was there was one particular there was a uh, an Oscar winning director from Mexico I'm not gonna say his name uh, that loved it that we, he was like, make this and I'll I'll either support it financially or I'll, I'll even make it for you. Um, the problem is that as soon as the war started, oh. uh, Hollywood doesn't want to touch anything having to do with not just Russia, but Ukraine. Like anything Slavic, keep away, man. Like we don't want to touch it. It's too dangerous. It's too, it's too. You would think it'd be the opposite, right? Yeah. But because Hollywood is so gun shy because it's, it's about tons of money. So you can't you can't experiment, right? You have to like do this the stuff that's already you know a guaranteed success. That's why we're seeing so much crap right now, because like they're doing they're doing the stuff that's gonna work. And I'm like of course it doesn't work because everybody's done it five million
0: times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've some of these fun. Superhero movies, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. 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 <laughs> I've never really been a fan, but yeah, you know, people like it. Yeah. Um, also wanted to add, uh, you've traveled the world. There's only been there's been a place or two you haven't been. Do you have any favorite places that you uh Stand out for you?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a bunch. Uh, I love Romania. Romania is a beautiful country. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Just uh, walking, walking the mountains, the Transylvanian mountains. You know where Dracula's from? That place. It's gorgeous. Uh, probably one of the most intense and coolest places I've I've ever been to was a, a, a Russian monastery on an island in the middle of the White Sea in the far north. Not the White Sea. Sorry, Lake Ladoga. This it's in the middle of nowhere. Like hmm. nobody even knows where it is on a map. It's near Finland. It's in the middle of nowhere for a month and a half in the depths of winter, in a place that hardly had electricity. Uh, as a cultural exchange kind of program, it was it was fascinating. Uh, but uh, that's that's an experience that you know, like yeah, nowhere else. You know, <laughs> nowhere else. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice. So you you were there for a month and a half
1: month and a half yeah
0: wow yeah, yeah. That's, uh, life. I, need,
1: I needed to sort some things out you know in terms of life and it was very useful uh, but yeah it was hard it was hard
0: oh. <laughs> sounds like it <laughs> um, so <laughs> another uh, another thing you another hobby of yours I guess guys because a hobby as y'all you are also a musician and yeah. I wondered with with music and writing do you notice any similarities or any kind of beats or patterns or rhythms that you can get with music and writing
1: you know you know it's an interesting question the thing that i find that's most unexpected about the two that are similar uh is something that refers for me to to choral singing now i i conduct a choir i'm I'm a conductor Mm -hmm. um by by profession actually um and i I also sing but there's something about directing a choir where you you would think it would be like a technical thing where you tell people do this do that just show stuff with their with your hands and kind of it's just about technique and about doing things properly and proper levels of volume and stuff like this. Actually, it's really interesting. But in a group like that, when people sing together, they start to read each other's minds in a lot of ways. Mm. And like, I can tell you that just from personal experience, like a funny thing is like, for example, a conductor will tell you, don't breathe at the same time as the person next to you. And invariably just because you're thinking about it and worrying about it every time for the next five minutes that you breathe your neighbor is going to breathe with you (laughs) it's just a small thing but it's also like you will tell people i want this in terms of the, the sound quality and you won't tell them how to do it and you won't show it but just by talking about it and by them feeling it amongst themselves they'll start to create it so there's something that's it's it's not like it it's something about the the connections that you can't see between human beings that are there but like aren't something that you, that you can you know r- record on a on a microphone it's something else right it's it's something that's that we don't know about yet or we can't we can't really um, quantify in in a in a purely numerical sense so that thing that happens it happens in all orchestras it happens in all choirs happens in any ensemble happens in jazz all the time right because in jazz you're you're improvising mm-hmm. and what is improvising improvising is not doing what you feel like it's doing what you feel like while also being aware of what everybody else is doing and making sure that it fits which is like thinking on a on a multitude of levels and to do it well you have it's it's a very profound thing that happens so that happens in writing Hmm. when you're really deep in a story and like the characters start to interact with each other and with you uh, and the author, almost like living people. Like stuff happens. Like they say things that you never would have thought of. They do things that you never would have expected. And then like the thing I talked about, how like in book three, there was that twist that I had on, you know, without anticipating it, had predicted and had put into the structure of the story without realizing it. That happens in music all the time. Mm -hmm. That kind of subconscious level of, of human interaction. Yeah, it happens in writing too. It's pretty cool.
0: I never realized that about, um, court about musicians and yeah, uh, choruses and people who sing together. I never knew never
1: that. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah.
0: Huh. Uh, so we talked a lot about what you write and, um, how you write <laughs> characters, but what do you like to read? Do you, what do you, what are you reading now?
1: oh man don't ask me about my tbr it's so embarrassing it's so huge like oh, oh i'm sure <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, me
0: and everyone listening can relate to you so don't worry about that yeah i know, okay. I know.
1: Um, right now i'm rereading uh robin hobbs uh farseer um not not the i I'm, I'm right now i'm finishing the tawny man trilogy but um i read the the fitz novels all nine of them when they came out um well, I guess I was too young to read the the first ones when they came out, but like the fits in the Fool trilogy, it was coming out and I was reading it as as it, as it was coming out and I finished it around 2017 or so. And so this is the first time I'm rereading the whole series and I love it much more than I did before. Uh, she's, she, she's an amazing, amazing writer. Um, I I also like, I try to read widely, like I'll read history books. I'll I, I like Robert, Robert McFarlane, who's a nature writer. Um, he's a really, really beautiful nature writer. Um, I read poetry. I, I read business books, but, uh, for this podcast, like the thing that's really like, really sticking with me right now is, is just how great Robin Hobb is. She's just, she's just amazing.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, it's hard to keep up for sure. <laughs> Can't oh, <wait>. man. <laughs> it's tough. Um, so I wanted to ask you about your, the courses you have on your website, you have some courses available, but well, uh, what can you tell mm-hmm. us about those?
1: Yeah. There, I have a few courses. There's there's one for intermediate writers. It's called The Art of Storytelling. That one is for writers who uh, aren't beginners, uh, who've basically gotten to a point in their writing where they've either finished st- something longer, like a novella or a novel, or they're just about to. Um, it's especially good for people who have finished a first draft, because what I do is I go through a lot of the best literature that's out there in, in craft, like Urs- Ursula Le Guin, Stephen King, some of the best writers, who have written about writing and write and do it in a way that's actually helpful because some writers, they don't understand why they write the way they do. So they, they give all this advice and it's only applicable to them. That happens a lot, but Ursula Le Guin and Stephen King, they've got some really great, and there's a few others there. So that one's like, um, that one's for people who, who want to like get past the hump or really make their first draft a lot better. I'm in the middle of live teaching a class called motivate your lazy characters, which Mm -hmm. is for beginners. That's, that's me like going into the techniques like the really basic level uh techniques for for fiction writers that a lot of people don't know about but some people intrinsically understand because they read a lot or because they watch movies a lot so this is me like basically breaking open the very first level of writerly expertise and i love this one because uh their eyes light up a lot on this like oh my god that makes so much sense and they go and start writing and i'm like yes go 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 (laughs) Yeah, so those are the two ones. And I'm working on a publishing, uh, a small publishing uh, mini course. It's basically me uh, surveying the landscape of publishing for authors, what it is, what it's like now, uh, whether you should go traditional indie, what are the advantages of both. And that that includes a conversation with Christopher Rocchio, who's a big fan. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of his, uh, who's a, what I call a hybrid writer because he's published both with big publishers and also for himself. And, uh, that's a great conversation. So that's going to be packaged into the course. I haven't sold it yet, but that's, that's
0: on the horizon, maybe before Christmas. We'll see. Oh, nice. (laughs) Keep an eye out for that. Are the courses online or are they modules or how does, how does it, how do they work? Uh,
1: so I've been live teaching them and then I keep them on sale as, as recorded modules for people who, who want to, um, want to go to get them at their own pace. But I do recognize that, People, for whatever reason, prefer to take courses from me if I live teach them. (laughs) So uh, I've tried to, I've tried like the standard model of just having an evergreen model, uh, you know, product out there and just directing people to it. But people, they only respond if I, if I talk about it. So there's got to be something about the way I talk about my courses that gets people excited because just looking at them doesn't make them as excited. (laughs) So I don't know what it
0: is. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's something, something to be said about having that interaction and having, you know, being able to kind of have the back and forth that, I think it makes people more comfortable knowing they can ask a question and have an answer for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you said, people are craving that kind of connection and, you know, it's not much of a connection over, over zoom, but it's something.
0: It's something. Yeah. It's more than what yeah. we had for a while. So it's true. Yeah. So I do have a couple more questions for you and I, I, I kind of, the hour flew, I think we could sit here and talk for hours, but yeah, it's um, awesome. <laughs> but um, yeah. So I had a couple of questions I'd like to ask all of my guests. Uh, the first one is is there a hobby or thing that you were excited to try, but when you tried it, you did not enjoy it.
1: Oh, uh woodworking. Yeah. I thought I thought I should be a man, proper man, and, and learn how to build things. And I build a few uh, planter boxes for my garden. And uh, that's that's that. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> no I don't go. have the patience.
0: Yeah. Nope. <laughs> I, I thought about doing wooden planters, but I went with cinder blocks instead. And that it was,
1: yeah, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. it. it works.
0: <laughs> Put them this high, and we're good. Yeah, leave them alone. Yep. Do you have a, a favorite? I think you could have an interesting answer for this one. Uh, do you have a favorite family recipe?
1: Oh, favorite family recipe. <laughs> uh, let me think about that. Yeah, um, I make. Uh, um oh my gosh beef wellington every christmas for my family oh wow yeah and uh it's uh it's a christmas beef wellington so it's not the traditional it doesn't have a crepe it's slightly different than than the usual ones and i make them in little uh i don't make the big hunk of meat i make them small like serving size so i I cut out little bits of of filet mignon and I do individual servings so Mm -hmm. i get like five or six of them uh, they, they look like they're so delicious. Oh my God. They're so good. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah, every Christmas. Oh yeah. And, and I have a, I have a soup that I make, uh, that's, um, it's a butter, butternut squash apple soup with, uh, with blue cheese. That's, that's my Thanksgiving offering every year to the family. Like I'll wow. make the soup. That's it. <laughs> yeah. that so it's what really
0: you, good. <laughs> uh, what do you do with the Wellingtons that is a little different? Cause you said it's like a, it's a little, not the same, like not a traditional Wellington.
1: So the. like i disappeared there for a second
0: yeah there we go oh i got you there we go all right yeah
1: thanks (laughs) the traditional wellington has has a crepe inside the the phyllo dough uh or the pastry dough i should say um so it's it's got more heft to it uh the ones that so this is a uh gordon Ramsay recipe actually um Mm -hmm. i found her on youtube he he doesn't have the crepe he just puts it in the in the dough and, and wraps it in prosciutto uh so it it seals in the the juices a, a little bit better, and um, the other difference is that I don't make it as as the because we'll beef filets are supposed to be this big hunk of of okay. um, fillet that you just slice up. But I found that if you just take small pieces of filet mignon, because those are the ones that you, they're easier to buy. Because if you want to buy like a big hunk of fillet, you're going to like spend a hundred bucks. It's yeah. it's a lot. But if you if you buy like just the store bought filet mignons, the little ones, right, the, the single serving ones, you can put two of those together or even make them individually. And the way that he makes them, he wraps them in plastic wrap so that you're so you really like you take all the air out and you make these little um, they're almost like um, I have a Russian word in my head. One <laughs> uh, <laughs> of those one what, what are those things called like that the, the, the like English people. No, not no. like a bowl, like a uh, like a pastry. Like hmm. you know, like it might be filled with with cheese or or uh, uh, or jam or something, but it's filled with beef and prosciutto, and oh, it's awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sounds good, yeah. It sounds delicious. So, some another another question I'd like to ask all of my guests is, um, what would your readers be surprised to learn about you?
1: Uh, what would they be surprised to learn about me? A lot, probably, yeah, <laughs> but I, I probably sometimes I happen. wonder what <laughs> what people might, might find surprising. I'm um, uh, I'm a, I'm a uh, ordained clergyman in the Orthodox Eastern Orthodox Church. That, they might find that surprising because, you know, clergyman writing fantasy novels. I don't know. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> That's
0: a pretty good answer. That's a good one. <laughs> and the, uh, so the last one I have is what was your first job and what did you learn from that experience?
1: Oh that's cool that's a cool question. Uh my first job my first real job was huh, I remember now it was <laughs> selling the idea of so it was a sale it was a sales job. So it was very strange. I got um I got hired by um a local community leader who wanted just to give me some experience. I was 13 or 14 just like experience in life. He was a very very odd man and you know kind of a character as they say, right? And he was uh, he was involved in local politics. I think he wanted to become either a, a supervisor in one of the boroughs in San Francisco and one of the, in one of the the city regions. Um, so he decided he would back a, uh, a a scheme that was that was on the ballot, which was a dedicated bus lane on one of the biggest streets in San, in San Francisco, which would have meant like traffic would have been reduced by thirty three percent. Right. So this is not a popular. Uh, ballot measure at all because people people don't like public transportation in san francisco for good reason and now it's even worse than it was than it was then but it was still bad then like it's it's inefficient it doesn't yeah people like to drive uh so my job was to walk around local businesses and hand out flyers and convince them that this idea was a good idea even though i thought it was a bad idea (laughs) so very useful in understanding how you how sales uh is all about persuasion and connection it's mm-hmm. not about begging it's not about being sleazy it's about making a connection with another human being and allowing them to see your your vision of the world for a second
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that's really helped me in because i'm a, I'm an indie published author i don't have a the you know the might of, of a big publisher behind me sales mm-hmm. is a very important part of my of my business but it's has it hasn't been as hard for me because i don't like when when i figured out it took me a little while but when i figured out that no this is just you sharing the wealth of what you have to off- offer with people who want it, right? This isn't like you convincing people to build a dedicated bus lane in the middle of San Francisco. This is just offering people a cool story that they might enjoy or they might not. It's up to them. And as soon as I figured that out, I was like, okay, I, I got this.
0: Nice. <laughs> mm. yes. oh, that is that is a good skill to, to learn, especially with sales. And yeah, you can probably. apply that di- to different things in your life too, not just with sales mm-hmm. or wanting to saw on just general black stuff too
1: yeah it's I mean learning how to be a salesman I mean people don't like the word salesman but they have to be salesmen all the time we have to if you have to convince your significant other to do something that he or she doesn't want that's that's being a salesperson if you're trying to convince your child to act in a way that that they don't want to act that's being a salesperson you know so yes, yeah, yeah 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 it sounds yeah. terrible but it's true
0: <laughs> what what percentage of being a parent is being a salesman
1: Oh, like a hundred and fifty! <laughs> oh my God, it's constant, dude. It's constant. It's ridiculous. They never want to do what's good for them, and you can't force them. Like, because even, even if you like apply, you know, like, you know, you you can force them if you really want to. You can carry them into the room. You can close the door. Um, it's not. It's not gonna help. <laughs> not, you haven't convinced them. They're just gonna do it again.
0: <laughs> I never thought of it that way until this conversation. But yeah, it is. It is a lot of the a salesperson. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. The time flew. I think we could go for hours and hours if we really wanted to, but um, I'd love to have you back again if you'd you'd ever want to. uh, I'd love to. Thanks, Steve. uh, Yeah,
1: This was a pleasure. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So in the meantime, uh, if someone is looking for you or your work, where's the best place to find you?
1: Uh, My website. Everything's there. NicholasKotar.com. And there's going to be more stuff there. I'm probably going to... Uh, have a Christmas shop of, uh, available for direct sales and there's going to be some really cool stuff there so if you guys like my stuff uh, check out the website definitely
0: and on your website there also is a link for your Patreon and for the yep. courses and all the, all of it's there so really good resource yep. the importance of a, of a good website I think is forgotten yeah and so I, it's I, true I loved your website because it has everything on it it's nice
1: well it also tells a story right that's yeah. part of the point
0: <laughs> yeah I think people depend too much on social media for that yeah and it's really important to have a nice website. So, kudos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So, a good designer. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really nice. Really nice setup. So, I was impressed. But, yeah, good stuff. Thanks. So, yeah, I hope to do it again soon. In the meantime, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again. Thanks, everybody. Right, thanks, everybody.